Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our host, Steve Butler. On today's program, our series entitled, The Second Coming Versus the Rapture, as he opens God's Word to study the difference between the rapture and the second coming. It's time to explore Bible prophecy. Hello, and welcome to a new series of programs on exploring Bible prophecy. In this series, we will explore the differences between Jesus Christ coming for his church-age believers, an event called the rapture of the church, and the second coming of Christ when Jesus returns to the earth with his church-age believers. The time period in between that rapture of the church and the second coming is something we call the tribulation or the great tribulation. It's a time when the Lord will bring terrible judgments to the earth. Over the next several programs, we'll deal with those two yet future bookend events because they both involve the church. And while we're experiencing God's blessings in heaven, God will be dealing out his divine wrath on those living on the earth. As you know by now, if you've been listening for any time at all to our program, Prophecy is my favorite part of the Bible to study. And of all the hundreds of Bible prophecies, the rapture of the church is my favorite because it's the glorious hope of eternity with Jesus that we have. And that's a quote from Titus, chapter 2, verse 13. The glorious hope when we look forward to seeing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we always do at the beginning of each new series of programs, such as this, on exploring Bible prophecy, we'll review the basics of how you can learn to study your Bible for yourself. I do this because I know that the study process works and that people's lives have been transformed. They've been transformed by the depth and breadth of Bible knowledge they learn. Bible knowledge that they did not see or understand before. For a Christian, that's so freeing and liberating. Looking at John, the book of John, chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, it reads, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will will make you free. Continuing my words means to study. That's the focus. That's what the Lord is imploring us to do, to continue in his word, to not let someone else tell you about God and about Jesus and the Holy Spirit. They will tell you what they want you to know. Instead, let the Holy Spirit fill you richly with what God wants you to know about him and his plans for you, and his plans for the world, for that matter. It's all in God's holy Bible. So let's get started. First, though, at the beginning of each series, I also want to open up with prayer and ask the Lord to bless these uh, following programs. Heavenly Father, we count it all joy to come before your throne to praise you, and to thank you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, whose death on the cross canceled our sins forever, making us acceptable to you. 
and whose glorious resurrection three days later gave us the confident hope of eternal life with you. We thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to live in us at salvation, to lead us into an understanding of your word. Now we ask you, Father, to bless this time of study and to open our eyes just a little bit more to what you would have us know about you. Amen. Now let's go ahead and do a brief review of how to study your Bible. There's a saying that goes, you can let your theology define the Bible, or you can let the Bible define your theology, and you make the choice. The dictionary actually defines theology as, and I quote, the study of religious faith, practice, and experience, especially the study of God and God's relation to the world. So basically, theology is the study of God and his word. So you have two choices. You can let someone else define what your theology is, or you can let the Bible, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, define what your theology is all about. Here at Exploring Bible Prophecy, we let the Bible define our theology. We call that study method inductive Bible study. And we endeavor to show you in each program how to study the Bible for yourself. So what is inductive Bible study? Well, the most important concept to remember involves three simple words. Context, context, context. <laughs> okay, it's actually one word, but it's a very important word. And most of the problems, in my estimation, in church today start with a misunderstanding of a passage of Bible Scripture. And that misunderstanding comes from taking that Scripture out of context. So when we study God's Word, how do we ensure that we're not taking His Word out of context? We use three simple steps in this process. They are observation, interpretation, and then, and only then, application. I emphasize application as being last because in our, in our hectic world, really, people want to read a scripture and then immediately apply it to their lives without fully understanding what it means and if it even applies to them. Therefore, first is observation. It's the most important step in studying our Bible. If we don't take the time to properly and fully observe the scripture, we run the risk of misunderstanding it. And if we misunderstand it, how can we properly interpret it? And if we misinterpret it, then we'll likely misapply it to our lives or to some aspect of our church life. So observe the Scripture in question, and then observe the Scriptures immediately before and after that Scripture. Then once you've observed, you ask the five W's and an H. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. Let's take a passage out of Matthew. Matthew uh, chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 is our example. So if you would, turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 16, and let's start uh, looking at uh, these scriptures. 18 itself says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Okay, so that's the, that's the passage in question. So let's um, 
observe by looking at the scriptures around it. So let's back up to the beginning of that thought, which is in verse 13, and begin reading. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 17, and Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then verse 18, our focus verse, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And then the following verse, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Okay, now that we've observed the all-important context of verse 18, let's go ahead and ask those five W's and an H. Let's start with who. Who is speaking and who is he speaking to? Jesus is speaking and he is talking to his disciples. We know that from the text. What is he talking about? Jesus is asking his disciples who the people say that he is. When did this take place? It was during Christ's earthly ministry, after his disciples had returned from telling Israel about the good news, the gospel of the kingdom. Where were they when Jesus asked his question? And they were in the district of Caesarea Philippi in the north of Israel. Why did, he, did Jesus ask this question of his disciples? The disciples related to Jesus that the people of Israel believed that Jesus was someone other than the promised Messiah of Israel. Finally, how did Jesus ask this question? Well, we find from the scripture that Jesus brought his disciples to a site well known for pagan worship, and that's Caesarea Philippi, and asked them privately who they believed he was. We should now have enough information to, to make an informed interpretation of the meaning of Matthew 16, verse 18. And again, that says, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades do, will not overpower it. Because Simon has correctly identified Jesus as the Son of the living God, and not just a man like the people of Israel did, Jesus does three things in verse 18. First, Jesus gives Simon the name Peter. In Greek, the language of the time and what the New Testament was written in, Peter is Petros. It means a stone. Second, Jesus stated that upon this rock he will build his church. In Greek, rock is Petra, a boulder or a bedrock. The rock or bedrock would be Peter's profession of faith in Jesus Christ from verse 16. And that bedrock is the foundation on which Jesus will build his church. Peter would then be a stone on that rock foundation. Finally, Jesus gives a promise that the gates of Hades would not come against or defeat 
his yet-to-be-formed church. So, given that interpretation of Matthew 16, 18, what application can we make for our lives? Christ states that his church will be built with people who make that same profession of faith that Peter made in verse 16. All right, probably right now you might be saying to yourself, I hear what Steve said, and I pretty well understand his Bible study process, but I'm still not really clear about why Jesus decided to build his church. Didn't Jesus say, for instance, in Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6, these 12, these 12 uh, quoting from 5 and 6 of Matthew 10, these 12 Jesus sent out after, instructing them to not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. End, end of the quote. That sounds like a, a total focus on Israel and the Jews, you might ask. Well, glad that we can explore that a little bit more with you. Remember, what were the three key words? Context, context, context. If your observation of the surrounding verses didn't give you a a clear interpretation, then look further out. Look at the whole chapter of Matthew 16. If that doesn't help you, then look at the flow of the whole book of Matthew. (laughs) You say, that sounds like a lot of work, Steve. But let's think about it. Who is pleased when you put the effort into Bible study? Who is pleased when you discover truth for yourself? God is. And who benefits from that Bible study? You do, and quite possibly those that you share your learnings with. When you broaden your context to include the whole book of Matthew, you find several interesting facts about prophecy and Jesus' ministry that might help uh, further explain. And since we go over these in more detail in other Exploring Bible Prophecy series, I won't quote these scriptures, but simply give you a, a thumbnail overview. First, Jesus came to Israel 2,000 years ago as Israel's promised Messiah, exactly as prophesied throughout the Old Testament. We find this in the beginning chapters of Matthew. He began to minister only to Israel at the age of 30 and traveled throughout the land sharing the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. In a nutshell, the, the gospel of the kingdom states that Jesus was the promised king of Israel And he was there to set up his kingdom on earth with Israel as the preeminent people and Jerusalem as its capital, just as prophesied in the Old Testament. Further on in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus gives Israel instructions on how to live in his promised earthly kingdom. But in Matthew 10, Jesus selects and sends out the 12 apostles with the same good news, the gospel of the kingdom, because the people were acting as if they weren't believing him. And then in Matthew 12, Jesus tells his gathered disciples that they, his gathered disciples, are his new family, not his biological mother and half-brothers gathered outside the room where he was meeting. And that's in verses 46 to 50, if you want to check that out for yourself. So this is the, the first sign that his ministry focus was changing changing away from Israel, who wouldn't believe him, and to a new people who would believe him. In Matthew 16, which is our Bible study example, 
Jesus calls his disciples back in to confirm who the people of Israel believed him to be. Was he their Messiah, King, Son of God, or just the Son of a man? Israel did not want to accept Jesus for who he really was, the Son of God. As Peter's profession of faith in Jesus as the Son of God, Jesus announced the impending creation of his church, effectively putting his promised earthly kingdom for Israel on hold. Hopefully this little overview of a portion of the book of Matthew has helped you to see the benefit of context, context, context. Expand your context out until you are comfortable that you have an interpretation that makes sense and that, most importantly, honors God's word. So to to summarize, summarize what inductive Bible study is, Remember those three key words, context, context, context. Identifying and understanding the context is critical. Then, observe the scripture asking the five W's and an H, and don't skip this very important step. Then and only then can you confidently interpret the scripture and then make applications to your life. The Apostle Paul made it very clear how important Bible study is to a Christian. In 2 Timothy 2.15, he instructed Timothy to study to show yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Here at Exploring Bible Prophecy, our prayer is that you will practice this simple method and that over time it will become second nature to you as you learn how to study God's word for yourself. All right. As we uh, endeavor to uh, answer questions that people sent in, let's go ahead and do that right now and uh, look at a question that has been sent in by uh, someone, uh, let's see, Bob. Bob in Kingsport has sent this question in, and it's a very timely question. It's actually three related questions, and we'll see if we can get through these here in the time we have. Um, He says, the word rapture is not in God's holy word. What does it mean? Who does it apply to? And when will it happen? So this is uh, very timely since this is a subject that we're on right now. Let's begin by turning to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, and uh, look at verses 13 to 18. 1 Thessalonians 13 to 18. And if you uh, get into your New Testament, which is where you'll find uh, 1 Thessalonians, you'll find the uh, first and second Corinthians, and then you'll find the small books uh, written by Paul, and then you'll um, get into First Thessalonians. So if you find Philippians, Colossians, and then you'll find First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 to uh, 18. So let's begin reading in verse 13. It says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, And with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. 
the dead in Christ in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. Now to help answer Bob's first question here, let's go back to verse 17. It says, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together. The word caught up is a Greek word, this being the New Testament written in Greek. It's a Greek word, harpazo. It means to snatch away and can even mean snatched away by force. Since a review of surrounding scripture doesn't clearly explain this exact meaning, let's look at some other New Testament verses where harpazo is used. Let's look at Revelation. Go to the end of your Bible, Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. And let's look at verse 5. And this is in context, it's talking about uh, Israel, the woman, and giving birth to a son. This is the male child. This is Jesus. So it's talking about his birth. And it says in verse 5, And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God, to his throne. And, of course, that's the earthly ministry and Jesus being uh, caught up to heaven, harpazoed, if you will, uh, at the end of his uh, first um, coming to the earth. And, of course, now there's the second coming that we'll talk about in our series of uh, programs immediately ahead here. All right, so we have that. And then let's look at Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. So let's move way back to the left in your New Testament, and you get to uh, the first and second Corinthians. As you're going backwards, you'll get to Acts. Go to the very beginning of Acts. So this is um, right at the end of Jesus' ministry and goes into the ministry of the apostles. And in Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 9, it says, And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside him. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So what we read in uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 5, about Jesus uh, being taken up, harpazoed into heaven, is described in some detail in Acts chapter 1 here when he is actually um, taken up and glorified and now is sitting at the um, right hand of the Father. And then finally, let's turn to Acts chapter 8. So staying here in the book of Acts and just turning a few pages to the right to Acts chapter 8. And this is uh, Philip uh, dealing and and talking to the um, Ethiopian eunuch who was trying to understand some passages from Isaiah. And um, in Acts chapter thirty, uh, chapter eight, verses thirty-nine, it said, "When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went out, but went on his way rejoicing." So here's another example of Harpazo, where Philip had been ministering to the Ethiopian eunuch, and then the Lord Harpazoed raptured him to another place uh, way down the road, if you will, in Israel. So we have an understanding now that harpazo in the Greek means to snatch away. Rapture 
to answer the question is simply the Latin translation of the Greek word harpazo. The Latin translation came from St. Jerome in the 4th century uh, after Christ, so 4th century A.D., and it's called the Latin Vulgate, or Common Bible. It was the original Bible used in the Catholic Church at the time in the uh, 4th, 5th, 6th century. Now that we've established where the word rapture came from, let's try to answer Bob's second question, who does it apply to? Let's turn again to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And let's look at um, chapter 4, verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 13. And it tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, uh, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not be grieved as do the rest who have no hope. So we're talking about people who, um, who are asleep, but it's understood that the people were asleep in the New Testament were believers in Christ. They were believers in Christ as the Son of God. So they, along with the living, were the ones that were snatched away in the rapture. Um, so the dead are raised from the grave are, are believers in Christ, as well as the living, because he, he referred to the living as brethren. So it's only the believers in Christ that are raptured up in the church. All right, Bob's third question is, when will the rapture happen? And there are a lot of opinions about how this happens, so I will give you uh, what I believe to be a strong uh, answer to that, but it's, it's one that uh, probably is in the minority uh, with a lot of people because that's just not the way they are teaching it. But I want to uh, share this with you, and it comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And it's uh, Paul talking to the Thessalonians who are very, very concerned that one, their loved ones that have died have, uh, will not be raptured, and two, they're having tribulation in their time and they've missed the rapture. And he's consoling them that that's not the case. So he says, now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come, so the tribulation. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless, it says, the apostasy comes first, and then the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So we know from other scriptures, um, Daniel and others, that the tribulation begins the seven-year tribulation with the revelation or the, the uh, coming on the scene of the man of lawlessness described here in, in verse 3. But it says before that happens, the apostasy comes first. Well, it's interesting when you do a, a study of old, old English Bibles and the Latin Vulgate that before the, uh, the King James that came out in 1611, there were actually seven English Bibles as well as the Vulgate that predate the King James, who calls it the apostasy, and those all call it the departure. And the departure, uh, is, which is an alternative uh, interpretation for this apostasy, is, I believe, the appropriate one, because not only does he um, make it clear that in verse 1 that we're going to be gathered to the Lord, but he also makes it clear in uh, verses 6, 7, and 8 
that the church is going to be taken out of the way because the church is the restrainer, the Holy Spirit who resides in us. So, Bob, I hope that uh, answered your question. Remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.